So we're in Luke 18, but I want you to say something. I want you to hear something. Uh, when we ended communion, we said, until the Lord comes. Actually, we didn't say it. We just read it. Do you remember that? Everybody cool with that? You remember? But listen to what's going to happen in the last days. Last days are defined for you. It's the days between the day of Pentecost, when the church was started, right there in Acts 2, and then till the time that Jesus unfolds his end times program. And now some of you in here are going, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And here I'm still in First Peter. I'm just going to read it to you. You're scoffing. You're saying, ah, yeah, right. Knowing this, verse 3, chapter 3, 2 Peter, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days during the church age, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, but by the word of God's By the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are preserved or reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So there might be some people in here, maybe, or maybe listening or watching And they're saying, yeah, right, until he comes, until he comes. And in fact, last week in Luke chapter 17, we had a lesson in Luke chapter 17. We had a lesson of sorts on these last days. And it was describing that program that we talked about from the rapture to the second coming. If you don't know that and you want to learn more about it, we did the outline last week of what's happening during the last days. And Jesus finished up with that. It's a section of the scriptures called the coming of the kingdom. Right there from verse 20 all the way to the end in verse 37 of chapter 17. So if you don't know that... How in the world could you possibly know Luke 18? And Luke is writing for a purpose. And the purpose is, it's fascinating. He's going to talk about a widow and a judge, a Pharisee and a tax collector, little children, a rich young ruler, and a blind man here in this chapter. And you say, well, is the writer just kind of putting things together willy-nilly? No, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And one of the purposes that Luke was called to write for and about, is that this is the gospel that includes all. Left wing, right wing, moderate, that side of the tracks, that side of the tracks, that color, that color, all socioeconomic. It doesn't matter in Jesus. We're all in Christ together and the same. And it's called the, you know, this universal gospel. It's not universalism. But it's saying that all can come by the blood of Jesus Christ and come into the kingdom. And that's what he's talking about. And you say, well, I don't know. Is Jesus really coming back? The Bible, I just read it to you, said the more people scoff is an, is, uh, is an indicator of how true it is. Because people are going to scoff. Now, it's true no matter what. Scoff, no scoff, doesn't matter. It's true. He's coming back to establish his kingdom here on earth. And that's what we're talking about. And when he comes a second time, despite what the popular culture says, he's not coming for fun and games. He's coming in judgment. You guys, all of you, every single one of you, I know it. You're going to go turn the news on tonight or sometime this week. And you're going to say something like this. Why doesn't God put an end to this? He's going to (laughs) when he comes back. He's going to put an end to it. The Bible tells us he's waiting because he's looking for people to come to know him in a real and saving way. 
And you might be saying, well, I've been to a church. I go to this church or that church or that church. I was born in the church. I give money. None of that matters. None of it. You might say, I'm a good person. You're going to learn today. It doesn't matter whether you're a good person. In fact, the Bible says that we're sinners saved by grace. We're not good people doing good things by a good paradigm. Are you catching that? I thought that's what Christianity was my whole life. And I went 19 straight years as when I was a kid and never knew the gospel. And I went to church almost every weekend and never knew the gospel. And Jesus here, he doesn't want you to miss it. And so he deals in these several parables. We won't get to them all today, but he says this. Read it along with me in Luke 18. As he continues his talk, don't take this out of context. He's continuing a talk on the kingdom of God. And the reality is he's coming back to the earth to set things right. Listen to this. The word of the Lord. Then he spoke a parable to them. Who's them? The disciples. That men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, there was a certain city, a judge who didn't fear God. There was a judge who didn't fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man. That's what the judge said. Yet because this widow troubles me, the word in the Greek actually means give me a black eye. She just pestered the judge. I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me, troubles me, gives me a black eye. She's beating me up, the judge says. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? Though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Folks, know the word speedily. People in the Christian church whine and complain about how the Lord doesn't answer their prayers. Hmm. Advance them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And that's the purpose of this parable. It's set, it's set in the context of prayer. And it is about prayer on one hand, but it's really about Jesus is coming. You, you and I need to know that. Jesus is coming. He says, he, will he, when he comes, the Son of Man, that's a messianic title. By the way, Jesus is the one saying this. Will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith? Now, let's break this down a little bit. What's a parable? A parable is a story that's set alongside, like on a plane, not an airplane, but two planes, you know, boom, set right alongside each other. So that you see the story, but you learn a spiritual truth. And this story is just like in Luke 11. For years, I scratched my head as a kid, read this and said, my goodness, is that what the Lord is like? But I didn't understand something. When the Hebrews would tell a story or write poetry or something like that, they didn't rhyme Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Catch, you know, they didn't do that. Is that a poem? <laughs> That's the only thing that came into my mind. <laughs> Give me a, whatever. You know what I'm talking What's that? Roses are red. There we go. But, but anyway, they didn't rhyme like we try to do all the time. One of the literary techniques that's popular in Hebrew language and writing is compare and contrast. It makes a point. Just like, go back to Luke 11. There's this interesting story that when I used to read, I used to go, whoa, wait a second. A friend comes at midnight, verse 5 of chapter 11. Which of you shall have a friend? Go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And I answer from within and say, don't trouble me. 
The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I can't rise and give it to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give it to him because he is friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give as many as he needs. Some of us stop right there. But Jesus goes on in chapter 11 and he says, but I say to you, ask and it'll be given to you. Why? Why would if I ask, would it be given to you? File that away. Seek and you'll find. Why? If I seek, will I find? Why? Knock and it will be open to you. Why would it be opened if I knock? For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks, it'll be open. Here's the why answer. Because, because if a son asks for bread from any father among you, would he give him a stone? That's just cruel. Or if a son asks, Or if a son asks for a fish, would you give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? See the compare and the contrast? Bad dad, great father. Then being evil, if you then being evil know how to give good good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, People of that time and also people of this time had a skewed or distorted or wrong view of who the father is. It happens now, folks. Like Santa Claus. Oh, if I'm a good little boy, he'll give me everything I ask for. But what if I ask for stuff that ain't good for me? I mean, quite frankly, I'd like to have a hot fudge sundae every evening for dinner. Would you? Maybe something else. Maybe a pizza with everything on it or whatever. Maybe whatever it is for you. I don't know what it is. But man, if I could. But here's the problem. There's heart disease in my family. So yeah, I could keep eating it, but it's not good for me. And there are some things that you and I ask for that are terrible for ourselves and we don't even know it. And God always works it out for good. He always works things for your good. Man, I'd love to have the hot fudge Sunday. Who would I? Well, if you flip back now to Luke 18, he speaks a parable. He sets something alongside that. Listen, to, listen, Jesus takes this, the punchline and gives it to you first. And last, by the way, men and women ought always or always ought to pray. So let's break that down for a minute and not lose heart. Who here, don't raise your hand, has or feel like life is making you faint? You can raise your hand. I don't care. (laughs) But if you do, we'll call it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) You ever been just so weary of life, you just felt like fainting? And here Jesus says, for the follower of Christ, he knows the reason you feel like fainting, because there's lack of prayer. But you go, okay, here's this pastor up there telling me to do more or be more. Well, you probably don't know the the Greek here. This word always, by the way, the Bible tells us in several places, pray without ceasing, that's in Thessalonians. Continue in prayer, be devoted to prayer. Several places, pray without ceasing. So how would we always pray? Or, you know, we got to go to work, folks. I don't know about you, but when I left my mom and dad's house, one of the first things I learned was, hmm, money doesn't grow on trees. I might actually have to work for this and do this and, and boy, save and pay and blah, 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 right? And so that's what God's called you to do, and that's what God's called me to do. And so we do this. So how do we pray without ceasing? Well, I think what this means is always to pray first, as we unpack this, is that a person who's a follower of Jesus Christ is always practicing the presence of the Lord, even if we're doing the dishes, even if we're uh, making a contract, even if we're building a bridge, even if we're, whatever the Lord's called us to do during the day, we practice the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, you know, we're concentrated on the contract or whatever it is we're doing, but we're saying, Lord, help me in this. 
But then again, what are we called to pray? In this particular instance, remember, context, context, context. He actually gives you what you're to pray in chapter 21. We're called, in verse 36, as we recognize that the Lord is coming back. If you're a scoffer, perfect. You're proving the point. Not perfect. We want you to come and and believe, but you understand my point. He tells us what to do as we think about the Lord coming back. We're to watch and pray that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. What's he talking about? Judgment. We believe you escape that as Jesus comes back to the earth that we'll be caught up in the clouds. You say, well, come on. But the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians that that's actually what's going to happen. We'll escape the judgment, but, but that's for another day. What are we to do? Watch and pray about these things. Hey, who, you, you've all been to all different denominations your whole life, but one thing has remained constant. I know it. Everyone in here, I'll bet you, or, or, or most of you know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Here it comes. Listen, listen. Thy kingdom come. Jesus taught us to pray, and he said, Pray, thy kingdom come. Watch and pray. Be alert and sober. This life, I want you to know something. If you think this life is go to work, get paid, save my money, do my hobbies, be happy, and that's all there is, you're missing the whole thing. There's this amazing thing that's playing out in God's economy, and we're a part of it. Wow. Can you believe that? God has chosen you and I to be a part of all that he is doing. And he says, watch and pray. He spoke a parable to them, verse chapter 18, that men, women, always ought to pray. What, what are the prayers? The Bible tells us there's prayers, just the prayers we pray. There's supplications. I need something. He says, pray for your needs, doesn't he? There's intercessory prayers. What's intercessory prayers? Standing in the gap for somebody else. We're going to do it after the church service. You're welcome to join us. We're going to pray. We're going to supplicate. Ask, put up supplication. We're going to put, or we're going to intercede for people. And then also these praises. Praise you, Lord. What is prayer really? It's just talking to God. How do we pray? Why is it that we can pray? Because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ allows us to come straight into the throne room of God and ask for mercy and grace. And Bible says you can go boldly into his throne room. You don't need to be scared based on the blood of Christ if that's what you're counting on. If you're counting on because you're such a great Christian, we're going to see it here in a minute. You're off base. Or if you say, well, I don't even know much about religion, quote-unquote, religion. Well, that's okay, too, because he said you just have faith as much as a child has faith. Mean utterly helpless, dependent upon the Lord. And you surrender your life to Christ. You come right into the throne room. You don't have to worry like these people in the Old Testament, whether or not you could be seen by the king or whether he was going to you know, crush you. No, our Father in heaven welcomes us. By the blood of his son. Okay, now here's the punchline. I want you to really get this. This word ought in the Greek. You say, well, he's going to tell me now I ought to be praying all the time. Well, maybe so. But that's, if you'll understand this word, I think it will revolutionize your prayer life. It's a word that means bind together. (laughs) You think you're going to the Lord because, you know, whether you're going to get a $70,000 bonus or an $85,000 bonus, and you're really nervous about that. Or whether you're going to, you, you should get a, you know, a Range Rover or a Lexus. Oh, man, Lord, it's such a big decision. I don't know what to do. Where, where should I go, Yale or Harvard? Oh, boy. What, what, Stanford? What, what? That's the kind of prayers we pray. And we think, oh, yeah, and you should ask for your needs. The Bible says needs. I'm not sure sure a Range Rover or your Lexus is a need, but that's up to you. 
But here's the thing that's happening. When you pray, you're binding yourself with the Lord. You, some of us come and they say, you know, I see all these promises in here and the Lord's not answering, the Lord's not. I mean, it's been two minutes since I prayed the prayer and he's still not answered me. Or maybe it's two weeks, or maybe it's two months, or maybe it's two years. And you know what the Lord's saying? Just keep coming. Because maybe what you're asking isn't really the important thing here. Maybe what you're asking is just going to kind of fade away, and at the end of it, you and I are going to be bound together. He spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. We're bound together. Not lose heart. Not give up. Not grow faint. Be a prayer warrior. Be a prayer warrior. Sure. But the reason we pray, folks, is not out of obligation. It's to spend beautiful time with the loving Father. And so I asked the church, be honest with yourself. What's your prayer life like? Do you spend consistent mornings and evenings or whenever just studying through the scriptures or you got Gray's anatomy on the brain? (laughs) That's a joke, but here's one of the killers of prayer. You know why? You stick it right beside your prayer Bible, but you're waiting for the likes. And you got all the notifications on and you get in five seconds into your prayer time and beep, 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 and you got to look. I've got to answer that person. We've become, we, we have no attention span anymore. And the Lord says, man, I want you to just come to me. He's not beating you overhead. He just says, come, come, come in prayer. We're going to bind ourselves together. And he finds a church, first of all, that's so busy with everything else. And he says, when I come back, will I really, he actually says that word, will I really find faith on the earth? Because prayer is faith. You say, what? A prayerless life, and be honest with yourself, is a life that's faithless. Because you know what you're saying to the Lord as you forget the prayer times, the the times to come to the Lord. You know what you're saying to the Lord, whether you say it or not. You, You know what you're saying? I got this without you, man. I've done this enough. When it gets to a crisis or something, I'll I'll come. But right now, I'm good. And Jesus knew it. And he warns us. And he says this, and he gives you this so that you're encouraged. There is in this city a judge who didn't fear God nor regard man. Here's this widow. Why would he pick a widow? Because in this culture, one of the most helpless people there is, there's nobody to help her. She's all alone. She knows nobody in the court system. Do you get it? And if you keep going with the compare and contrast with us, listen, we're not strangers or a widow. We are actually the children of God, the Bible tells us. And she has no access We have all kinds of access by the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you catching this? She has no person or advocate to get her case on the docket. Because, see, what would happen was they would send around. You can look at it in the Old Testament. They would appoint like three-person judges. And they would be like traveling judges. And they'd get to the city or the gate. And oftentimes the, the staff who kept you from the judges, the people that helped the judges... There were so many cases in the cities that sometimes people's cases couldn't get heard. So guess what developed? Bribery. They would slip somebody a 20 or whatever to get their case on the docket. She had nobody. Listen, folks, the Bible tells us in 1 John that we actually have an advocate, and the word in the Greek is defense lawyer. We have an advocate. She has absolutely no promises to stand on. We have all the promises of God, Romans 8, 26, and other places, to help. Oh, by the way, in Corinthians, it says, just so you know, 
Yes, we're to stand on the promises of God, but this is the beautiful part. All the promises are held in Christ, the person. Yes and amen, the Bible tells us. All the promises are in the person. You see, if you're coming here today and you think Christianity is like some Susie Orman paradigm of living, that ain't Christianity. I'll be a good person, I promise. Well, the problem is you have no capacity to be good enough. Because the Bible says all have fallen short of the glory of God, the standard of God. None of us can be good enough. That's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Religion reaches up to God. Christianity reaches down for man. God reached for man by his grace and mercy. We could never be good enough. Oh, you say, well... I'm, you know, I'm pretty good. Morally, I probably would be up on, you know, the Rocky Mountains compared to some people. But the problem is you're still eons away from the goal. You get it? So she has no advocate. She has no way to get it on the docket. She has uh, nothing, no promises to stand on. We have all the promises in Jesus Christ. We have everything the Bible tells us we need for life and godliness She goes to court to get things done. We go to the throne of grace. Are you catching that? You ever been to court? Don't, don't raise your hand. <laughs> Court's nerve-wracking, man. Don't do this. Whatever anybody tells you, and I'm a lawyer, so I know this sounds like a commercial, but this is so true. Don't represent yourself as... Lincoln said, right? He who represents himself has a fool for a client. Don't, don't do that. And here we don't have to because we come to the throne of grace. She pleads out of poverty, massive poverty. She has no way to get things done. The Bible tells us in Philippians 4.19, we have all of God's riches to meet our needs. And here's the biggest one, the the biggest compare and contrast in this parable. This judge is unrighteous. He couldn't care about the things of the Lord. God is perfectly righteous and good and kind and just and merciful and all the other things. And we get to come to him. Why wouldn't we spend our time with him? Gray's anatomy. It has nothing for you for me. But the Lord, why why not just, listen, put your phone away for five seconds. Go outside on the porch. (laughs) Grab your Bible and a little journal or something. Just grab your Bible and just read five verses and just say, hey, Lord, I'm not sure I get this. I'd love to know this. Help me over the next days. Or, Lord, there's this thing of great spiritual concern that's happening in my life. I just want to come and talk to you about it. Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. God will avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. I tell you that he'll avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? When Jesus comes, or the coming of Jesus in Titus chapter 2 is called, listen, for the Christians, for the Christians, I'm saying this on purpose, is a blessed hope. For those who find themselves outside of the blood of Christ, it's terror. I ain't saying it. It's what it says in the Bible. It's our blessed hope. It's a purifying doctrine. If you're outside the blood of Christ, no worries. Today is the day of salvation. Just come and give your life to Jesus. It's our blessed hope. And he says, well, we really find faith on the earth. You know what's going to be, listen, listen. Oh, is this convicting? Is this convicting? You know what is going to be one of the great indicators that there's faith growing in your life? One of the great indicators. There's an ever-increasing need and love to spend time in prayer. (laughs) Why do you think the church is impotent right now? Everybody complains about the church, and why don't they stand up and join this or do that or fight there? 
because they're not fighting the right way. We're not fighting the right way. Corinthians tells us that our weapons are not of this world. We have spiritual weapons, and here's how I can prove to you that we're not fighting the right way. You want me to tell you? Call a prayer meeting because not many people show up. Now, am I guilting you into stuff? I'm not guilting you at all. I'm just telling you the truth, man. See, for the Christian, prayer is like breathing. You couldn't do it. You couldn't uh, hold it for very long (laughs) without dying on the vine. And he tells us right here, not me. He says, if you're not praying, you're fainting in life. Now, listen, again, this isn't to guilt you. What the writer here, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recounting what Jesus says, is Jesus is saying, don't come to the Father out of guilt. Come because he's great and good and merciful, and you know it, and it's in your soul, and you can't live without him. That's it. It's just a response to the goodness of the Lord. You say, oh, okay. Well, what about the next one? The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And also, he spoke this parable, verse 9, to some who trusted in themselves. Some of you, you're like, you know what? Some of us are reading this and we're just like, okay, come on. Time to go. Let's go. I don't want you to miss this, man. There are some that he was speaking this parable to who trusted in themselves. In other words, they were self-righteous. They were self-righteous. And what's funny about self-righteousness is we're all naturally self-righteous. You could look at Romans 12, verse 3, Romans 5, verse 12. The Bible tells us that we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to do. Go look at it in Romans 12, verse 3. We think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Many of us are fooling ourselves, the Bible tells us. Proverbs 20 says, most men will proclaim their own goodness. But the scriptures tell us that we offend. And there's not anyone upon the earth who does good or righteous things. No, not one. Why is that? You say, well, wait a minute. Bill Gates gave a gazillion billion dollars for malaria nets, which is a good thing. Not criticizing Bill Gates for that, but the Bible says anything that's done outside of faith is sin. Good thing. Great thing. But we're talking spiritually here, folks. And here, some people are going to trust in themselves. What's that? Well, come on, man. I'm not as bad as Stalin or some of the serial killers. I didn't do any of that. Jesus said, if you've hated somebody, you've killed them. I've never committed adultery. You've lusted after somebody. You've committed adultery. Here's the kicker for me. Have you ever coveted something? Oh, come on. Every one of you have coveted something. I have. That's a violation of God's law, and it must be paid with blood. And it's Jesus' blood that the Christians are counting on. But others who think they're Christians trust in themselves. They say, I'm good enough. When I get to heaven, here's what they do. They balance the scales. Well, I'm not so bad. I trust in myself that we were righteous. You know what that kind of thinking does? You know what that kind of self-righteous, gross thinking does? It makes you mad at others, despised others. What do you mean? Well, here's what happens in the church. You ever been a part of a church like this? I have. I go to serve on the committee, and the other person, you know, the one they voted in, you didn't want them to vote in because you didn't like them very much. And you start going down the path of the committee meetings, and you're like, yeah, man, I'm going every week. And then whoever this one is misses a couple, and you're like, you're thinking to yourself, I told them. I knew it. I knew he was a screw-up. I'm so much holier. You don't say it. I'm so much more into this. I'm so much more in tune to the Lord than they are. They didn't even come last week. Self-righteousness. If you've been a part of self-righteousness, you know the gross. Is that a word, grossness? 
What's the word? I don't even know. Anyway, it's so gross, isn't it? It's tough to be around. It's tough. But the problem is all of us have some of it to some degree. Without the Lord in our lives especially. And here he says, don't fool yourself and trust in you that you were righteous and you despised others. No, what he's saying here is trust in the righteousness of God. We'll get to that in a minute. This is my favorite doctrine in all of the Bible. It's liberating. Two men go up to the temple to pray. Well, that sounds good. People are going up to the temple to pray. What a great deal. One's a Pharisee, a self-righteous Pharisee. That's why he used them. A believer in the first five books of the Bible, and man, you better memorize it and keep it. And I'll be watching, the Pharisees would say. I'll keep it, but I'm going to keep it perfectly so I could look over at you and say, look, how do I know this? Because the gospels are full of it. You know what they would do? They would go and make sure you saw how much they were putting in the treasury box. I gave more than you did. They would go out and publicly, you're going to see it in here in a minute, they would fast twice a week. And many believe, that's in verse 12, many believe that's a reference to Monday and Tuesday because there's only one time they really had to fast. That was during the Day of Atonement. But traditionally, by tradition, the Jews would fast on the fifth and second day of the week. And the reason is, is up the mountain and down the mountain to receive the commandments on the fifth and second day. So they just developed that. But here there's a reference to people fasting. And in the language here, it's the first couple days of the week, which was, guess what? Guess what? That's when everybody went to the market in town. So they'd be seen by people. Do you hate showy religion? Yeah, you should. Does it really bother you? Yes. They would say things like this. They would stand up. And even though they were saying they were praying to God, you ever been with somebody that does this? Oh, it's so gross. They pray, but they tell you how fantastic they are. So they're really not praying to the Lord. They're praying to themselves. They say the Lord or whatever, but it's not a prayer to God because they say things like this. Maybe I've even said it before. Look how many times right here in these couple verses... He says, I, I count five. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Isn't, that's funny, man. If it wasn't so sad, it'd be funny. Oh, Lord, you imagine if the pastor, Lord, oh, thank you like I'm not like them. What would you say? What would you think? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. <laughs> Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Why? Because a tax collector was hated. He was appointed by the Romans, but the Romans hated him because they knew he was a traitor to his countrymen. But the countrymen hated because he was giving in to the Romans. So he was the most hated occupation in all of Israel. He's a tax collector. I'm way better than him. He's hated. I fast twice a week. I give tithes, listen to this, of all that I possess. Oh, I give everything away. So self-righteous. Trying to earn their way to heaven. And the Bible says you cannot earn your way to heaven. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's God's unmerited favor. It's like he just says, here's everything you need. Now receive it. You say, well, what do I have to do? And Jesus tells us, he says, believe. Isn't that amazing? Here, the tax collector, listen, the, the contrast stood afar off. He just felt like he wasn't even close enough or shouldn't even be close enough to even enter into the presence of God. There was this humility that he had. He stood far off and wouldn't so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. And that's talking about grief. That's what they would do. It was grief. He, he, he was burdened for his sins. That's what this is telling you right here. And there's something in here that you can't read in the Greek. Neither can I, but I looked it up. And it says, God be merciful to me. He actually says with the Greek word, atone for my sins. That's what he says right there. That's what you need. That's what I need. Atonement for sins. Bible says without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. I already referred to that. What do you mean atone for my sins? God's wrath poured out against sin because the penalty for sin is death. 
That's what the cross was all about. That justice must be satisfied. Like the first decree in Esther, it can't be changed. So that God sent to solve the dilemma, if it's a dilemma, he sent his son so that he could both pour out his wrath, punish sins, but for those who trust in Christ, the second law, they're raised to new life in Christ. He says right here, listen, 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 folks. I want you to think about your own spiritual life right now. Are you counting on anything else but that God would be merciful for you and apply the blood to your sins because nothing else matters? Am I the pastor? Doesn't matter. Did I come to 52 Bible studies this year? Doesn't matter. Did I give 60,000? Couldn't care less. God says, in order for you to come into the kingdom of God, that's what we're talking about here, your sins must be atoned for. Wow. That just blows the lid off United States Christianity. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Now, you need to know this. Justification in the Bible, the Bible says you're justified through Christ, is a judicial or spiritually judicial decree. For those who surrender their life to Jesus Christ, the gavel of heaven comes down and says, you're justified. He says, you're not guilty because of the blood of Christ. You're justified. It's a decree that God does here. This one was justified. Why? Because he recognized that the only thing that could get him to the kingdom and to be happy about Jesus' coming back is atonement for sins. There's no other way. No other. So I tell you this, man went down to his house justified. The hated, the outcast, the traitor. The traitor. And you say, you know, you start looking at this and you go, man, why would those guys be in such direct opposition to their countrymen and so hated? And the Bible tells us that God demonstrates, this is in chapter 5 of Romans, God demonstrates his own love towards us, all of us, in that while we were yet sinners, Meaning there is this big separation between us and God. We were separate from God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for you when you were great. He died for you when you were spiritually an enemy. Now, now let's take it out of context for a minute. Or not out of context, but let's remove it from what he's talking about here for a second. How many of you here, don't raise your hand, have a son or a daughter? Or are a son and a daughter. Whatever. You have that family time. I always say this. I kind of say it to shock you, but it's true. I ain't so sure I'm giving up my kids for anyone. No way. He sent his son out of heaven. You say, oh, he's God. Yeah, really? Before the foundation of the world, here he is, the Trinity. One God in three persons fully in love, fully in communication, fully self-sufficient, didn't need us, yet makes us, creates us, knowing full well that we would sin and his son would have to be sent. It's just too hard to imagine. And yet that's what the Lord has done. Folks, he says here, don't count in your own self-confidence or ability to bring about righteousness. Let me say that again. Don't count on your own self-confidence or ability to bring about self-righteousness or righteousness because it never works. In fact, my personal favorite, this is because it's had such an impact on me. My family's tired of hearing it. We kind of make a joke of it at home. They always say, tell him again, Dad. Tell him again, Dad. But I just feel like this is what I was made to tell people. 
For he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, God made Jesus who knew no sin, never was a sinner, to be sin for us. How could that be? Our sins were imputed to him at the cross. It's not that Jesus became a sinner. He never was a sinner. That's the point. But our sins were imputed to him. It's like an accounting term. They took it out of one account and put it in another. They imputed your sins, my sins, to Christ. That's what God did. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we place our trust in what Christ did at the cross, his death and resurrection, guess what happens to you? You get imputed to you the righteousness of God. So that when you show up in heaven, the Bible says you're appointed once to die and then the judgment. You're not in purgatory, folks. The judgment happens. You know what God's going to look at to see whether or not you could be quote-unquote worthy? Have you been cleansed by the blood of his son? Do you have the right clothes on, Isaiah 61, the robes of righteousness, that your sin has been washed away, he remembers it no more, and now you have the robes of righteousness? That's how you get to heaven. In fact... In Romans 4, just go there. Look in verse 23. <laughs> Beside my Bible here, I wrote, wow. 23, 24, 25. Now, it was not written for his sake alone. You think I came up with the word imputed? Now, it wasn't written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It's for us. The imputation of righteousness. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. (laughs) In other words, the Bible shows us that our sins were put on him. His righteousness flows back to us. So that remember how I started this whole thing? The Bible says we're... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're down here. Here's his standard. Look at this. Look at this. For those who surrender their life to Christ, you meet the standard. But only because of his righteousness. Get it? So freeing. You know why it's so free? I don't have to be self-righteous anymore. (laughs) I don't have to be better than you or do more than you. I can just rest In my Savior. Look what he says here at the end as we close up. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is nothing more than an uh, extension of what we already talked about. Don't try to earn your way to heaven. Just count on his finished work. And if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. I've got this funny story. You want to know a test of true humility? Here it is. Write these down. Do you feel joy when others are honored? Do you openly and uh, honestly admit sin? Do you seek truth from others regarding your weaknesses? Ooh. Do you accept criticism graciously? Oh. Do you turn all worry, anxiety, and concern over to the Lord? Do you respond with humility when you have been replaced? Did you hear that? Do you pursue godliness in all that you do? Do you feel you can answer yes to most of these questions. Can you answer yes to most of these questions? Well, good. Take a look at yourself. You just failed the test of true humility. (laughs) Bible says he gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. That's why they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Jesus called them to him and said... Wait a second here, guys. Let the little children come to me and don't forbid them for as uh, of such is the kingdom of God. You see, he's talking about the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. What in the world does that mean? It means, uh, boy, you know what? We've been (laughs) so blessed at our house. We have a new baby around and it's not ours. It's Xander and Olivia's. What a blessing. (laughs) 
But there's one thing you know certainly here in the first few months and going forward. That baby is completely helpless. Totally dependent on its parents. And sorry, Xander, but especially its mom. But whatever, its parents, totally helpless. And Jesus said, spiritually, spiritually, that's how you come into the kingdom of God and you're there. You recognize you're totally helpless. There's no way to get to God without his righteousness put into your account. No way. In fact, Jesus said it in his most famous sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you recognize now, maybe some of you didn't before you walked in here, do you recognize now that you're spiritually poor? You have nothing to offer the Lord. He has everything to offer you. All you do is just receive. Because of the circumstances today, we're not going to have a closing worship song. But I'm going to pray with you. And here's what I want you to think about. Have you been trying to get to the Lord by your own merits? If you have, don't. (laughs) Stop. Help me to stop be that way. Just receive what the Lord has for you. And you know what the Lord has for you? He tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I'll read it to you, and this will be our prayer. Pray this prayer. It's this. Everybody bow your head. By grace, Lord, we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, or we would brag and boast about it. Now we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here today or listening that doesn't know whether they're going to have eternal life, that they would place their faith in Jesus for that eternal life. They'd cast themselves on him, that they'd ask for forgiveness and repent and walk towards you, Lord, by the blood of Christ so that they could receive your righteousness. And I pray that if anybody here has done this, that they would tell others about their newfound faith or their new faith, that they would Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And oh, by the way, I pray that for all of us as we move forward this week. And Lord, as we are here today, we're thinking of Robin. And we pray, Lord, you'd heal and touch and give her peace and strength and her husband too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you all. If you have anything to pray about or for, come on up here. Or if you want to talk, Come on up here. Otherwise, fellowship with each other and uh, have a great week. Uh, We love you all and we're uh, glad to see you this morning. God bless you all.